When we think of history, we imagine a time before ours, a different era. History often feels inherently historic. But this whole podcast is devoted to telling stories from history in a way that shows that every human being from every era of history is just like us in one way or another. Sometimes it's more difficult than others to provide that context. But in this episode, the context won't be too hard to provide. Because this is one of the only episodes of Historium where I was alive to witness it. But just because this event happened more recently than others in history makes it no less historic. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 15, Almost Home. On the morning of February 1st, 2003, James Couch, a resident of Norwood, Texas, sat in his trailer eating breakfast when his dog Star began acting strange. She was hiding in the corner, just like she did when a thunderstorm was rolling in. James heard a low rumble from outside. He opened the door of his trailer to find the sky completely clear, not a cloud in sight. He put on his camo hat and walked down his gravel driveway, past his pickup truck, adorned with a Confederate flag bumper sticker. He heard what sounded like helicopter rotor blades, followed by a loud thud. He ran behind his chicken coop to see a massive piece of jagged metal pierced into the earth. He peered up and saw what looked like dozens of shooting stars falling to the earth to the east. His neighbor's son ran out to see what had happened as well. He yelled about a blown-up spaceship that he had seen on the news. Mr. Couch and the boy continued east, finding more and more pieces of debris. Charred circuit boards and twisted metal littered the landscape. The boy found a scorched helmet nearby, covered in blood. A few dozen yards away, Mr. Couch saw something horrifying. He diverted the boy's eyes and told him to run and call the sheriff. Behind him lay a bloody and burnt human skull. From a hunter-gatherer woman staring up at the starry canopy above her, to an Aztec priest plotting the course of the constellations, to Galileo arguing with the Catholic Church about our place in the universe, to the Hubble Space Telescope proving the universe was a lot bigger than we all had thought. Humans have always looked up into space with a sense of wonder and awe. But when we first began to pierce the veil of our atmosphere and into the great expanse of space in the mid-20th century, the feeling was less wonder and awe and more urgency and competition. The space race officially began on August 2, 1955, when the Soviet Union responded to the United States' announcement that they would begin putting artificial satellites into space with a declaration that they would begin launching satellites of their own. The Soviets beat the U.S. to the punch, launching Sputnik two years later. Americans were terrified that the Ruskies could spy on them at all times from their new satellite above. However, Sputnik's orbit never even crossed U.S. airspace. But the Soviets were in the lead, and they kept it by putting the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, in 1961. The United States went into overdrive to try to catch up, and their efforts were not in vain. On July 20th, 1969, the Apollo 11 mission put two men on the moon. The Soviets did the best they could to follow suit, but never truly regained the lead. 
When the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, the space race had officially ended. The United States and Russia had gone from fierce competitors to now being on the same relay team. It turns out the spirit of competition from the space race worked wonders in drumming up funding for missions. However, by the 1970s, Nixon began cutting NASA's funds. By the time the reusable space shuttle program was implemented in the 80s, funding was done partly through private subsidies to promote competition. Because of this, the environment of NASA had transitioned from a culture of safety to a culture of economic incentive. Spaceflight began to feel safer and safer as the memory of the Challenger disaster faded away into the rearview mirror. By 2003, spaceflight seemed downright routine. The Columbia was America's first space shuttle. The shuttle was incredibly complex, designed to launch like a rocket, then fly like a plane upon return. The shuttle was a result of thousands of designers and engineers working together to design the most expensive vehicle ever created. The next launch for the Columbia was set for early 2001. There were seven crew members. Commander Rick Husband, a lanky Air Force colonel and mechanical engineer with a thick Texan drawl. This would be his second time in space, and he was the head honcho of the entire crew. William McCool, a Navy aviator and aeronautical engineer. He was the youngest male crew member and would be serving as the pilot for the mission. Michael Anderson, an African-American physicist who would be in charge of the scientific payload of the shuttle. Elon Ramon, an ex-Israeli fighter pilot and would be the first ever Israeli astronaut. He was the oldest member of the crew. Kalpana Chawla, an Indian-American astronaut who would serve as a mission specialist who would be responsible for operating the shuttle's primary robotic arm. This would be her second time in space. David Brown, a large Navy captain who would be serving as the flight surgeon, essentially the doctor on the shuttle if any medical emergencies arose. And finally, Laurel Clark, a mission specialist who would be responsible for the biological payload of various organic experiments that they would be performing on the mission. The seven were ecstatic. The launch was planned for January 11th, 2001, but was delayed 18 times for various reasons. Finally, on January 16th, 2003, the weather was deemed permissible and the launch was on. Hey, that's the crew as they were uh, preparing and walking out to the uh, astronaut van, which will take them to the pad. This is a crew coming out of their crew quarters uh, as a unit on the third floor of the operations and checkout building. All of our astronauts, of course, are uh, now suited, and they are getting onto the elevator that will take them down to the uh, ground floor and to the astronaut van, which is waiting for them. All seven crew members nervously found their skyward-facing seats and strapped in. Ground control went through their usual checks and double checks. Everything was set. They were cleared for takeoff. The crew members looked around at each other as their hearts pounded in their chest. Ground control began its countdown. 10, 9, 8, 7, we have a go for main engine start. 5, 3, 2, 1. We have booster ignition and liftoff of Space Shuttle Columbia with a multitude of national and international space research experiments. Houston now controlling the flight of Columbia, the international research mission finally underway. 
Thousands watching from Cape Canaveral or on TV held their breath as the shuttle hitched its ride out of the atmosphere on the external fuel tank and rocket boosters. But most didn't clap. Not yet, at least. The image of the Challenger was still there. So they waited. Waited until the booster rockets detached, the fuel tank fell back to the Earth, and the shuttle began to fade from view. Now, they clapped. They had made it. At least, so far. Once in orbit, the 16-day scientific mission began. The astronauts worked round the clock, conducting various scientific experiments studying the effects of microgravity. Well, things are going really great, Miles. We're having a great time up here. We had a great rise to orbit, and uh, all the activation of the experiments in the space lab went extremely well, and uh, we're really, uh, we've got our space legs and uh, up and running. As the shuttle was safely orbiting Earth, NASA employees in Houston began combing through the footage of the liftoff, looking for any abnormalities. One of them caught something. The external fuel tank, the large red-orange cylinder between the two white booster rockets, is covered in a thick layer of foam to prevent ice from forming on it. 82 seconds after liftoff, a suitcase-sized piece of the foam fell off the tank and struck the left wing of the shuttle. The employee watching the tape called over his boss, who called over his boss, who called over her boss. Eventually, the low-resolution tape reached the chair of the mission management team, Linda Hamm. She ordered a team to survey footage from previous launches to see if similar foam shedding had occurred before. After footage from previous launches had been painstakingly analyzed, the team revealed that the foam shedding had occurred in the past, and that it occasionally had struck the shuttle, but never hard enough to do any major damage. Linda Hamm and the rest of the mission management team debated even telling the astronauts, as there would be nothing that the crew could even do. Eventually, though, Ground Control notified the crew of the Columbia in a briefing email, but played the issue down as something incredibly minor. None of the windows or cameras on the space shuttle faced the wing, so they had no way of seeing if there was even anything to worry about. NASA even thought about pointing a spy satellite towards the Columbia to see if they could get a glimpse of the wing, but after weighing the cost of re-aiming an entire spy satellite, NASA decided against it. Because of all this, no one saw the dinner plate-sized gash in the Columbia's left wing. Ignorance was, in fact, bliss. Houston, and that's a wonderful song. Made it up another wonderful day in space. And uh, I'd like to thank my wife and my two kids for all their support for this flight. And we'll make it get busy on another day in orbit. Thank you. For the next two weeks, the astronauts on the Columbia worked diligently to gather as much scientific data as they could. Chemical reactions were conducted, animals' vitals were checked, and plenty of notes were taken. Additionally, each astronaut worked as a spokesperson for NASA as a whole, being interviewed and sending messages to and from the edge of our world. Uh, one day I was in the flight deck uh, looking from the overhead windows outside and uh, it was starting to get dim outside so you start to see your own reflection and there is the earth limb outside, you can still see the earth's surface and the dark sky overhead 
and I could then see my reflection in the window and in the retina of my eye, the whole earth and the sky could be seen reflected. So I called all the crew members one by one and they saw it and everybody said, oh wow. On February 1st, 2003, at 2.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, mission control operators began preparing for the Columbia's re-entry. After witnessing over 200 sunrises and 200 sunsets, the crew of the Columbia was finally coming home. At 8 a.m., the man in charge at mission control, re-entry flight director Leroy Kane, observed all the weather forecasts and gave the all-clear. At 8.10, the crew was told that they were cleared to begin re-entry. So we have 10 minutes to get gloves on. Lowell, do you need help? I think I'm almost. Okay. After you get yours, then I'll get mine. 175 miles above the Indian Ocean, pilot William McCool began the shuttle's de-orbit burn using the shuttle's maneuvering thrusters. All seven astronauts felt their weight begin to slowly return. At 8.44, the crew excitedly looked out the windows as the shuttle entered the discernible atmosphere, 400,000 feet above the Pacific Ocean. That might be uh, some plasma now. Think so already? The astronaut firing right now. Uh, It was quite a bit, actually. Yeah, we see it out the front also. There's some close. Tell me when there's good stuff out front. I'm filming overhead right now. That's kind of dull. Oh, it'll be obvious when the time comes. Just go ahead and make sure you check your seat pressure integrity too. All right. And come check on it. Come put the uh, visors down. CDR. BLT. At 8.48, a heat sensor on the left wing showed a slightly higher reading than a previous re-entry data. But it was negligible. No one at Mission Control or in the shuttle was worried in the slightest. Everything was going according to plan. At 8.50, the shuttle reached peak thermal stress. Crew members witnessed the usual flashes of plasma as the shuttle tore through the thicker atmosphere. Nearly as much as the back. That's going pretty good now. Don, it's really neat. It's a bright orange yellow out over the nose, all around the uh, the nose. Why do you start seeing the swirl patterns out your, you know, like left or right windows? Wow. Looks like a blast horse. This is amazing. It's really getting uh, really bright out there. Yep. Yeah, you definitely don't want to be outside now. At 8.50, Columbia crossed over the California coast. Many Americans finishing their morning commutes saw a bright streak across the sky heading east. The more savvy citizens knew that it was the space shuttle returning to Earth, while others may have accidentally wished on an ill-fated shooting star. As the Columbia passed into Nevada, a system operator at Mission Control told the flight director, Leroy Kane, that four sensors on the left wing just went off-scale low, which meant that they were no longer getting a temperature reading from that area of the wing. 
FYI, I've just lost four separate temperature transducers on the left side of the vehicle, the hydraulic return temperatures. Four high return temps? To the left outboard and left inboard elevons. It was at this point that Kane knew that something was wrong. Meanwhile, shuttle watchers near Albuquerque, New Mexico, began noticing debris shedding from the shuttle. Faces turned from confusion to horror as they realized something was going terribly wrong. However, the crew of the Columbia had no way of knowing the extent of the damage. For all they knew, things were still going according to plan. It was a bit bumpy, but hey, re-entering Earth's atmosphere is going to be a bit bumpy. At 8.58, the shuttle crossed New Mexico and into Texas. Shuttle watchers watched in terror as more and more pieces of debris broke off from the vehicle. At 8.59, Leroy Kane somehow maintained his composure as more and more sensor modules on the left wing began to deactivate. One technician gulped and read out that the tire pressure in the landing gear had gone to zero. Everyone's heart sank. The Columbia could no longer land. And Columbia Houston, we see your tire pressure Copy. messages and we did not copy your last. Is it instrumentation, Max? Uh, Mike, Max, are also Mission Control asked Commander Rick Husband what the situation was on board. His final recorded words were, Roger, but... before being cut off. That was the last transmission from the Columbia. Columbia Houston, com check. Columbia, Houston, UHF comm check. Columbia, Houston, UHF comm check. We don't know what the final moments of the crew were really like. We don't know if they screamed, if they went unconscious from the lack of cabin pressure, or if they just remained calm, as astronauts tend to do. But we know that the last thing they probably saw, as the crew compartment broke up around them, was Earth. William McCool, Michael Anderson, Ilan Ramon, Kalpana Chawla, David Brown, and Laurel Clark all died just 16 minutes from home. Rick Husband, a native Texan, died a lot closer to his. At exactly 9 a.m., the space shuttle Columbia broke apart and disintegrated over rural Texas. The few onlookers saw a shooting star slowly break into a thousand pieces. Over the next few minutes, space shuttle debris began raining down on several counties east of Dallas. Mission Control began getting in calls about the footage of the Columbia breaking up above Texas. No one in the room knew what to do. A single tear fell down the flight director's face. Fido, do you have any tracking? No, sir. GC flight. GC flight. Fly GC. Lock the doors. Copy. No one would be permitted to enter or leave, for they could be standing in an active crime scene. Some poor NASA employee had the horrible job of having to go into the room where all of the astronauts' families were waiting and tell them that the shuttle was gone. Major news networks began non-stop coverage of the tragedy, and the whole situation felt eerily similar to the terror attacks in New York less than two years prior. 
the nation was devastated. Later that day, President George W. Bush addressed the nation. My fellow Americans, this day has brought terrible news and great sadness to our country. At nine o'clock this morning, Mission Control in Houston lost contact with our space shuttle Columbia. A short time later, debris was seen falling from the skies above Texas. The Columbia's lost. There are no survivors. The same creator who names the stars also knows the names of the seven souls we mourn today. The crew of the shuttle Columbia did not return safely to Earth. Yet we can pray that all are safely home. President Bush declared East Texas a federal disaster area to better fund the massive search for debris. Thousands of volunteers descended upon Texas to participate in the effort to gather the shuttle's remains. It was the largest ever organized ground search to ever take place in human history. Hundreds of thousands of pieces of debris were found over the next few days. Human body parts were occasionally found among the debris as well. Miraculously, Ilan Ramon's journal containing traditional Jewish prayers and some of his notes was found mostly intact. And one of the last noteworthy things they found in the debris, which I remember so vividly as a kid for some reason, was a canister of petri dishes with worms inside. The worms, amazingly, were all still alive, the lone survivors of the Space Shuttle Columbia's re-entry. Following protocols established after the loss of Challenger, an independent investigating board was created immediately after the accident. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board was led by retired U.S. Navy Admiral Harold Gaiman and consisted of expert military and civilian analysts who investigated the accident in incredible detail. When reports began surfacing to the media that foam shedding caused the accident, the public simply scoffed. It seemed absurd that something so small and so light could do that much damage. The investigation board actually set up an experiment where they fired a piece of foam roughly the same size at a duplicate space shuttle wing. They shot the foam at the wing at the approximate speed the shuttle was going at the time of impact, and the result was astounding. A large hole, roughly the size of a basketball, right where the foam had hit. On August 26, 2003, the board determined that foam shedding was in fact solely responsible for the damage to the left wing and the resulting overheating of that wing that caused the shuttle to disintegrate. They also concluded that a rescue attempt would have been theoretically possible if they sent up another shuttle, the Atlantis, and did a high-risk maneuver to transfer all of the astronauts to the other shuttle. However, because of the high risk and cost of a potential rescue mission coupled with the poor initial assessment of the damage of the wing, the untried rescue mission was largely not held against NASA. However, three members of Mission Control were demoted, and many others were moved to different positions. The culture of NASA began to change and have more strict safety standards and more contingency procedures in place. The space shuttle program was discontinued for two full years, Construction of the International Space Station was delayed, relying on only Russian resupply missions to 
keep the station operational on a skeleton crew. In 2005, space shuttle launches resumed. However, it was the beginning of the end. In 2010, upon completion of the International Space Station, the space shuttle program came to an end. The catastrophe that was the Columbia disaster had a profound effect on how Americans saw space exploration. It had its cost. In this case, it was seven human lives. But the journey to space, our final frontier, continues. The next shuttle mission after the Columbia disaster by the Discovery dedicated their voyage to the deceased crew of the Columbia. Humans' dedication to space exploration is now at something of a crossroads. We see both the inevitable existential benefit for future generations, as well as the immense economic cost. Will we unite as humans to become a multi-planet species, or do we need another space race led by Elon Musk's SpaceX and other private companies to jumpstart innovation? Regardless, our journey into space can and must continue. I could leave you with a comment on how sacrifices must be made on the altar of scientific progress, and that may be true, but it sure as hell doesn't leave a good taste in my mouth. Honestly, I just wish those astronauts made it home. But let us never forget them, or their sacrifice, or the crazy idea that our destiny lies above us, perhaps amongst the stars. This episode was partly inspired by a song, actually, called The Commander Thinks Aloud by The Long Winters. The song is about the Columbia disaster and what the crew was thinking as it all unfolded. The song has a 100% success rate of making me cry, so I strongly suggest checking it out. It's really powerful. If you are a fan of Historium, another podcast I suggest checking out is The Ends by Kevin Allen. The podcast examines historical tragedies and final moments from history. It has a similar feel to this show, and is also really good. Right now, he's going through a series very similar to this episode, about the first man in space. You should check it out. And finally, I have good news, and I have bad news. The good news is that I am getting married soon to the love of my life. So with the wedding and the honeymoon, Historium will be on a brief hiatus for a few weeks. But fret not, episodes will probably start again later this summer. You can follow Historium on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Every day, I normally post a cool photo or two from history, so like and follow Historium on those platforms. But the absolute best way to support the show is to review it on iTunes. I hear five stars is a popular choice, but honestly, leave a review telling me what you think of the podcast. That's the best way to help the show. Lastly, I seriously could not do this without you, you wonderful listener you. You are the best. I hope I can continue to tell stories from history in a way that you can really enjoy. Again, you're the best. I'm Jake Barton. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>